Welcome to episode 32 of Jesus and the Meteorologist. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and I am your host. Our subject is discernment, and our aim is to teach, to elevate your minds and to exalt your courage, to accelerate and animate your industry and activity, and to excite in you an ambition to excel in every capacity, faculty, and virtue. Our mission is to inspire young men and women and their parents to understand the present in order to prepare for the future, a task that necessarily demands a proper interpretation of the past. Our aim is to highlight the antithesis between the way of the Lord and the ways of the world, between the truth of Scripture and the opinions of men, so that we might reflect the light of life in a culture of death. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know what kind of music this is? Boys and girls, anybody? Graduation, Graduation music. Graduate. Now, do you know the name of this song? Uh, it's actually called Sine Nomine, which means without a name, which is funny. <laughs> the name of the song is Song Without a Name. All right, we'll bring that back in a little bit. By the way, it's nice to be wearing shorts and short sleeve shirts again, isn't it? Yes. yes. Oh. Most who know me understand that I hold a very special appreciation for this time of year, the second quarter, March 21st to June 21st, approximately, when everything comes to life and hope springs eternal. From pretty flowers to bright green leaves springing forth from their buds, clothing the formerly naked trees in thick, rich glory. When the grass transitions from its dormant, pale, straw-like hues to a lively, softer, sweet green carpet. A literal resurrection of the created order every year. A manifestation of things that are and a shadow of the glorious things to come as a result of Christ our Lord, who is the resurrection and the life, the ultimate reality at back of all of these things through which he indisputably speaks to us. Of course, in Middle Tennessee, this resurrection of the natural order is unfortunately accompanied by pollen. And this year, we seem to have a lot of pollen. Anyone who has lived in this area through at least one spring can attest that for about six weeks of this otherwise glorious second quarter, everything in Middle Tennessee is covered in yellow dust. From our cars to our deck furniture and everything in between. In fact, if you leave the door open for more than a few minutes, your interior floors and furniture will also manifest this annual yellow rite of Middle Tennessee spring. And as I say that, I'm reminded of our conversation before coming in the studio that Winnie has noted that this year was perhaps her first or worst yes. allergy year. Yes, I am very stuffy today. But keeping you happy is a... Yes, what, I'm tell, tell our so audience busy. what you're doing. I'm crocheting a little blue bag. I think I'm going to use it for hair supplies. It's cute because right now it's, it's the bottom of the bag, so it looks like a little canoe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crocheting a little canoe. Penelope, do you know how to crochet? I know how to, but I'm not very good at it. I prefer, I prefer knitting. You have sisters that crochet, don't you? Yeah. My older sister likes crocheting a lot. She's really mm. good at it. Yeah. I doubt that Roger crochets. No, I don't crochet. Yeah, I can't yeah. either. That's um, okay. I think this pollen's about close to finishing off. I can't wait. In the meantime... <laughs> In the meantime, I um, digest my daily Claritin and bee pollen. Yes, Penelope, my arm is peeling. Penelope got me distracted there, and her mouth almost hit the table because I have scales on my right arm from peeling. <laughs> Too much sun. 
Spring's also the time of year when young men and women fall in love and when we enjoy many special and happy occasions like proms, formals, weddings, and the conclusion of another year of school. I attended government school in Pennsylvania when I was a boy, and I can recall with great pleasure and fondness the feeling of complete and utter freedom that ran from, through my veins as I walked or even ran out of those big school doors every June. Yes, we were in school until early June. For what seemed to be three months of seemingly endless summer, it felt like we were being furloughed from prison. Commencement is one of my favorite activities, so much so that this year I even added an old version or two of the classic Cine Nomine to my Spotify playlist. <laughs> yeah, I, this, this, <laughs> this never gets old. We'll let it go just a little bit. That's the intro, of course. Yeah. Here we go, right into it. Has Can't a nice, you just see the caps nice, and gowns flowing? Yeah, right, <laughs> right now you see them coming into the room. Tassels. Tassels aglow. Oh, yeah. Who, who couldn't be, ex- <laughs> who couldn't be <laughs> excited like about graduation? <laughs> right? It was the night before graduation when all through the house. Well, this is how we get in the mood. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, this is how we get in the mood for graduation ceremonies. As the father of six children, I have enjoyed more than my fair share of commencement proceedings, both high school and college. Last weekend, which by the time this episode airs will be last month, but I digress, my family had the privilege of attending yet another Hillsdale College commencement for one of our children, our third, and it didn't disappoint. Among the pre-graduation activities at Hillsdale every May is a joyful Friday evening reception and dinner for graduates and their families. When we return, I'm going to tell you about an interesting and unexpected little worldview interaction that occurred at the reception this year. When we were standing in line to taste the hors d'oeuvres, you are listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists. There are citizens in Tennessee working to reclaim the practice of self-governance in our state and ensure that a constitutional, Republican form of government is preserved to future generations. We are Tennessee Stands. Do you want to get off the sidelines and learn how to stand for liberty in your community? Join us at TennesseeStands.org and on social media at Tennessee Stands. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologist, a weekly squidget devoted to the topic of discernment. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and I'm your host. Before we get into our discussion of this little worldview interaction at the Hillsdale reception, I believe we have a few new, how shall we say it, housekeeping matters to put in order. By now, our audience is familiar with the Offices of Hypothesis, which sounds like this. Offices of which, as we explained in a recent episode, is actually a room contained in and located down the hall from the lobby of the Palaces of Analysis. Well, a couple of weeks ago, after recording another spectacular episode of Jesus and the Meteorologist, when I was leaving the virtual offices of Hypothesis, and after I had passed through the lobby and out the front door of the figurative Palaces of Analysis, I noticed for the first time... Across the front lawn, but well within our view, a very old yet persistent-looking property whose front porch faced the palaces of analysis. 
For visual assistance, I pulled out a pair of binoculars in order to decipher the little words scribbled on the sign in the front lawn of our neighbor's property. Ah, yes, of course. Considering all of the unargued assumptions spewing forth from the old man sitting on his rocker on the porch, in light of his protestations that reality was limited by one's experience, and perhaps mostly because of his pretension that evidence for God was ambiguous to him, I should have known that this was the premises of my nemesis. You see, whereas the starting point for all things in the palaces of analysis is the triune God of, and as revealed in Scripture, it is the presumed and unproven autonomy of man which serves as the starting point for all views expressed from the premises of my nemesis. And it is, ironically, from the premises of my nemesis that a very prestigious and highly respected, also extremely intelligent individual, attempted to challenge Roger's worldview last weekend when we were in line to taste the hors d'oeuvres. By the way, before I let Roger pick up from here, hors d'oeuvres, you know how that's spelled? Yeah, it begins with an H. When he looked up at me immediately, she's been tasked with this before. Well, it's French, so I yeah, that's yes. my language. So we used to call it horsey duvers when we were because <laughs> that's what it looks like. And every time I write this word, so it's H O R S, and then the second word is D apostrophe O E U V R E S, hors d'oeuvres or horsey duvers, if you like. <laughs> it makes sense after learning French. You're like, yeah, that, that looks like hors d'oeuvres. Okay, so I'm going to let Roger give us give us. Uh, a little bit of background, and then I'm going to ask some questions to all of our icebergs here. But as I indicated, we were standing in line for some very yummy lamb chops, actually. Yeah, those were good lamb chops. They were awesome, and and ended up being the only thing that I got from this line, because we got into a conversation with a gentleman who learned that Roger was uh, not going to go to Hillsdale and had chosen a different school for different reasons, mostly having to do with the fact that Hillsdale does not have an engineering program, and we got into this conversation about uh, truth and, and how Roger knows what is true and good. And, and Roger, what did you say to those questions? Well, um, the first question he asked me was, what is wisdom? Because he was asking me whether or not the school I want to go to taught wisdom. And your reply was, where did you go first? The first place I went was scripture. Obviously, wisdom is knowledge of God. Yeah, and that's found in... Any anybody quiz quiz here? Where where does where do, where do the scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? But fools, fools despise, despise wisdom and instruction. instruction. Where is that found? Proverbs one seven. Proverbs one seven. <laughs> Proverbs Sorry, I always forget the references. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. And so, what was the response? He accepted the premise personally. Yeah, but then he, but but then then he, he said, challenged you and said, what do you do if someone says, I don't believe that to be the source of wisdom, right? Exactly. So it, it is important that our audience understand that the challenger to Roger was not himself taking the position that Scripture was not the root of all truth, but rather— But he was kind of playing the devil's advocate. Okay. So he asked— what, he, yeah, what to do if someone does not believe what I believe, or if someone says, I don't accept that premises— and there was some back and forth, but at the end of the day, he eventually, he quoted C.S. Lewis, or perhaps a quoting is too specific. Paraphrased. He paraphrased C.S. Lewis, and he claimed, although I don't know this to be true, he claimed that his 
uh, Lewis's position was based upon this this premise. What did he ask you at the end? Didn't he ask me if... Or tell you. Yeah, he kind of told me because it's pl- the only one that's plausible. Is that what he... Yeah. He, so, I- exactly. Plausibility seemed to be where he ended, which I thought was interesting. By the way, I love these moments because it provided... It, immediately when this conversation was happening, of course, I'm chomping at the bit. I wanted to answer. <laughs> But the questions were I kind of froze. I was the opposite. <laughs> well, the questions were not directed at me, and it would have been unfair of me to jump in uh, and to answer for Roger. I wanted him for his own sake, as well as not to interrupt the the flow. Um, it was being directed by this challenger to Roger, and I wanted to let it play out. But yeah, I did. I really wanted to chime in and answer. Our challenger was motivated by the desire to make Roger think and defend himself, which was noble. And so I needed to let that play out. But he did two things. One, he said, and and this is what I want to focus on for everyone. Number one, he said, what do you say to someone who says he does not believe the scriptures, right? Uh And then he came back and he said that a Christian must argue, this is his position, a Christian must argue from a position of what is plausible or plausibility to the unbeliever. Now, let's... I know. Let's, so Winnie's already looking at me like, hmm. huh. yes, this is good. Hmm. So let's talk about that. Having had time to reflect, Roger, and not having time to reflect, Winnie, and having perhaps a little bit of time to reflect because she was there and directly was Penelope. Tell me how you would respond now to the first question. What if someone says to you he does not believe the scriptures, and therefore? He shouldn't um, have to accept your premise. How do you, how do you start to pick that apart and apolo- and be an apologist for the Christian faith? Well, for one, I think this wouldn't it wouldn't be able to take place in one conversation. I would definitely have to learn about that person's worldview, what he or she believes, to know what they don't believe about the Christian faith. Okay, so that's a really good point and one that needs to be repeated endlessly today because we live in a world in which everyone expects a a quick response via Twitter, via any kind of um, an Instagram post, a, even in media, um, a soundbite. But you cannot have these conversations in sound bites. And as Roger pointed out, the first thing we must do, we because we know that what we believe is true, we should never fear allowing the unbeliever to completely tell us everything he believes. Right. Yep. So that is that. Is, so you have to kind of relax and say, okay, I'm not going to finish this argument today, what can I do? What can I, how can I move this forward? Okay, that's a good point. What else? Does anyone else have something to add to that before I give you some prompts or hints? And by the way, everyone opines, right? 80% of unbelief, though, is situated on this, this plane, if we were to use a metaphor, a plane of unproven bias, and, and plain, P-L-A-I-N, right? Not P-L-A-N-E. Mm-hmm. So my question would be, can he prove his unbelief? He has stated, I don't believe the Bible is true. Okay. But if we're going to have a rational conversation, shouldn't he be expected to provide evidence for his unbelief? Exactly. Yeah. If, if we're supposed to provide evidence, then he should also be yeah. able to. Both sides well. have to provide evidence. It's not like only the Christian who has to provide evidence for why he believes Scripture is true. Yeah, the, the unbeliever the show, doesn't get a veto card and say, nope, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 he's starting from a position then that his premise is correct and that we are the ones that have to prove our position. We do, but he doesn't. 
So that would be my question. Can you prove your unbelief? I know that you believe this or I, or that you don't believe something, but on what basis do you hold this belief or unbelief? Were you going to add something, Winnie? She's going to sneeze. Oh, cough. Now, see, they're the allergies. <coughs> yeah. He's good. Real-time allergies. Yeah, the allergies have been really bad this year. We talked about that at the beginning of the program. I know. I'm just also <laughs> so, saying they've been very bad this year. As to the first point, what is your theory of knowledge? If you're going to claim that, as the unbeliever, and remember, again, the challenger to Roger was not an unbeliever. He was trying to suggest that Roger take a different approach than what we would suggest in this episode and what I would teach as to how to handle someone who says, well, I don't believe the Bible is true. I would say, if you don't believe the Bible is true, what is your theory of knowledge? What is your epistemology? And can you give evidence for it? Okay? Make the unbeliever prove his position. Okay, as to the second point, his second point was, and this is what the challenger was saying, not the unbeliever. The challenger was asking Roger, and he said that Roger, as a Christian, must make his position plausible to the unbeliever. Now, what do you think about that? Doesn't that—oh, go ahead. It reminds me of the verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 26, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I. It is such an honor— when students, former students, and friends bring up scripture references that we've used in class. Okay, excellent, Winnie. So tell me what that means. Yes, it means that we should not answer a fool because, like, go into his worldview to answer him, but you should answer him from your worldview to show him the truth. You're not trying to convince him. So at first, that verse sounds like a contradiction, those two verses together, right? It says... Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Right? That's verse 5. And then it turns right around in verse 6 and says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So the first part is telling us, and this is this should be our approach to all of apologetics. The first step is you don't accept the premises of my nemesis. Right? You don't accept the premises of the person who's questioning you as a starting point. However, to prove that the person's premise is wrong and that what he believes couldn't possibly be true, you have to accept his premises for the sake of argument, not that you're adopting it from a, a principal point. Which gets us to this. On what or whose authority does the person say, talk about plausibility, right? Isn't that a key question when you're talking about plausibility or possibility? In other words, plausible to whom? To the unbeliever. It's making the unbeliever the standard. It is making the unbeliever. It's making the unbeliever's premise the standard, right? So the unbeliever is the one who's deciding whether or not your belief is plausible or not to him. This is such a common mistake by Christians who immediately go on the defensive. First, by accepting the premise of our nemesis, the premises of our nemesis, then by failing to challenge the authority of would-be autonomous man. Who establishes, I'll ask all of you, who establishes the limits of possibility and plausibility? God. God. Yeah. Right? But just as some of those who witnessed the resurrection doubted its meaning, so too will those who presume their own autonomy find reasons to deny the plausibility of the Christian worldview. Right? Yeah. Okay, so what should we do in the end? 
we've answered the unbeliever by asking him questions, right? On, on the first point, which was, well, I don't believe it, we've said what? What do you believe in? How can you prove that? Yeah, prove your unbelief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm going to prove my belief, you have to prove your unbelief, which is really a different kind of belief, mm-hmm. right? And on what authority, right? And then as to the second point, plausibility as defined by whom, right? And we're, get, we're just getting back to the central thesis, which is plausibility defined by God or plausibility defined by man. It's always where this ends, which is why it's such a mistake when a Christian does this. It's not that we don't hear what the unbeliever is saying. We understand that the unbeliever claims that he does not believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. We hear that the unbeliever claims that he does not believe that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. But our challenge to the unbeliever is that while he stakes out his position, he cannot account for his position according to his own worldview. He cannot make sense of his unbelief unless our beliefs are actually true. In other words, unless God is who he claims to be in Scripture, unless the world and nature is, as God tells us, he has established them in the created order, unless man is who God tells us man is, and unless the very nature of truth itself is defined by God, the unbeliever would have no basis for making an argument against God. For to argue against the triune God of Scripture requires, among other things, that one proceed rationally, that one depends upon the reliability of language, and assumes the regularity of the created order, none of which can be accounted for in a chance random, unbelieving worldview. Indeed, as we've explained many times on this program, the Word of God is the precondition for the intelligibility of anything. Unless one presupposes the truth of scriptures, nothing makes sense. After the break, we're going to take one more stab at the problem from a little bit different angle to help you understand. You are listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists. So I wrote a little book all the way back in 2009 to address what was happening in America and what was likely to happen if we did not take corrective action. Unfortunately, too many of my predictions are coming true. The only surprise is the speed at which we have reached the precipice. The title of that little book is The Experts, and you can buy it on our webpage. Just go to JesusAndTheMeteorologist.com, click the image of the little brown book, and we'll send it to you for only $9.99. And then be sure to let me know what you think. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologist. My name is Kevin Kukuchi, and I am your host. And let me tell you, Winnie is so quick, she's completely finished that whole purse. Oh, yeah. All, All of it is done. <laughs> she actually made 17 more okay. while we weren't looking. Oh, how, wow. Yes. How big is, how big is it going to be? Um, I don't know. I think about a third of the way done. But already it's no, but it's no longer nice. a canoe. For our audience who can't yep. see how big it is now. It's about... A third as big as what? <laughs> an inch uh, and a half. But it no longer looks like a canoe. That's how much progress yeah. you've made. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's really fast over there. Just learned how to do it. You just learned how to... Yeah. Oh, wow. So let me give you another approach to expose the folly of attempting to make our beliefs plausible, because that's, that's really what I want to drive home here today. If, if, if our position is, and many Christians make this mistake, 
trying to argue the plausibility of Christianity to someone who doesn't accept at the starting point, this is how we have difficulty in explaining and defending the faith. So I'll give you another example. If we're trying to make our beliefs plausible to someone who presumes his own autonomy and who at the outset rejects the Word of God as the starting point for knowing all things, let me suggest this. Suppose someone steals your car, right? I know, Roger, you don't have a car, but Winnie has a car. Yes. And I know it's an older car, and perhaps you'd, you'd be happy if someone stole your car <laughs> so you get insurance money. Um, suppose someone steals your car and hides it in a parking garage, right? You know, one of those four or five floor cement parking garages, okay? Suppose further that you have full knowledge of this and that you have even video footage of the theft, which allows you to know the exact location of the car. You've got video footage of the, the theft occurring, and you see right where your car is at the end. Now suppose when you confront the thief that he denies it, saying, quote, I didn't steal your car, and I have no idea where it is, end quote. With this in mind, would you seek to make the thief's knowledge of the whereabouts of your car plausible to him? Do we need a clock? Oh, no. Of course not. Winnie? Roger? Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> it took me a while to process what the question was, but yeah, no. I'll say it yeah. again. He stole, I'll say it quicker, though. Stole your car, put it in the parking garage, and you have video footage of this, which means what? It means he knows where the car is and... You know where the car and is. And you know where the yeah. car is, okay? But he says to you, I have no idea where the car is. I didn't steal it and I don't know where it is. When he says that... Would you seek to make his knowledge of the whereabouts of your car plausible to him? No, you just no. say, here's my say, evidence. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so clearly you would not do that, right? Yeah. No. And you wouldn't do that because why? Because you know he's lying. Because you know that he's lying, right? And it, so it affects your entire approach to how you answer the question. Well, the same holds true with apologetics. In order to argue effectively for the truth, we must know and understand the unbeliever better or better than he's willing to admit he knows himself. What do the scriptures tell us about the heart of the unbeliever? That it's corrupt. Okay, and then, and then what does Romans 1, starting at verse 18, tell us? That people do what with the truth? They suppress it. They suppress the truth, since what? By their wickedness. Yeah, by their wickedness, in their unrighteousness, right, in their sinful conditions, people suppress the truth since what may be known about God is plain to them. Is plain to them because God God has has made made it plain plain to them. Yeah. So if we know that when the unbeliever claims Scripture is not plausible, that the unbeliever is actually suppressing the truth, either by affirmatively lying or through self-deception, then trying to help him overcome his doubts would be as futile as trying to help the car thief overcome his doubts about the disposition and location of the car that he stole. All of which, by the way, was captured on video. Like the car thief, the unbeliever must have a change of heart. Only then, when his entire orientation about everything has changed, will he know and understand that the Word is the starting point for all knowledge, and from that point understand that God determines the limits of possibility and the definition of what is and what is not plausible. The fundamental error made by far too many Christians when dealing with unbelief is that they accept the presumed or professed innocence of the unbeliever. 
despite what is written in the Word. In other words, they accept the premises of their nemesis. They accept without any evidence or critical thinking that the God who made everything, that the God who knows all things and who holds all things together according to the counsel of his perfect will, could somehow have made a mistake, could somehow have managed to create some people without knowledge of him and the truth of his word. Do you see that contradiction? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you accept the innocent proclamation of the unbeliever's unbelief, what then does it say about God and your belief about God? It's on the same level as their unbelief. Well, either you believe the Bible is true, or you believe that the unbeliever is innocent. But you can't believe both of these things, can you? No, you can't. No. Questions, comments? Recipes or concerns. Right? You understand that? I'll say it again. If you accept the innocent proclamation of the unbeliever's unbelief, if he says, I don't believe that, and, you know, it's not plausible or possible to me, well, if you accept that, then you can't say that you believe the Scriptures, because the Scriptures tell us that all people know God. Mm -hmm. So either the Scriptures are lying or this person is lying, right? Yeah. And by lying, sometimes it's affirmative, sometimes it is self-deception. Consequences are the same. You don't get a pass if you deceive yourself, right? So either you believe the Bible is true or you believe that the unbeliever is innocent, but you cannot believe both of these things. All right, I think we need a little more sine nomine. Give us this bookend, a graduation bookend. Hmm. Picture those tassels. Is it the right side to the left or the left to the right when you graduate? I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. Well, Roger, you're going to have to know because yours is coming up in what, a yep. week, 10 days? 10 days. Ooh. By the time this airs, Roger, too, will be a high school graduate. A little bit smaller than college, but still a... Still, still a checkpoint. Doesn't that music still make you happy? I think perhaps it's because I played in concert band in high school for so many graduations that, <laughs> that we, all, we always why. played this. That makes a little more sense. All right. We'll find a cool way to roll this into our outro music and finish for the day. That's all the time we have today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again to our icebergs, our producer, and to all of our listeners and supporters. In the never-ending battle for hearts and minds, we aim to find and develop young men and women who, like the men of Issachar, understand the times and who know what to do. And how can we know what we're to do unless we believe what is what true? What is true? Oh, what? <laughs> oh, that looks sad. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and you've been listening to Jesus and the Meteorologist. Meteorologists.